Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Off The Beat and Track Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Stu Whiffin. It's another week, therefore it's another episode. Today's episode, I sit down with Sarah Jane Morris. This is a fantastic story, and we, we, we really go into the most unorthodox of upbringings, and to, to I, I think we get to the point where Sarah was at like thirteen different schools, and and you know confidence was a, a you know a real low, and then to turn that round, and then you know to have I think it was like that when she was in the communards. Uh, Eight, was it eight weeks or four weeks at number four or eight weeks? I think it was at number one. We don't leave me this way, uh, and and the impact that that has on you, you know, to become this super recognisable face literally overnight, and uh, and we talk about the work that has followed that and 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 her career in Italy and and a beautiful story uh, about the loyalty of those Italian fans. A, 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 a recent trip to, uh, to to South Africa and and. and and, and we talk at length about the project that she's been working on that, that started kind of in lockdown and, and has, has, has come up to this point ahead of um, a show on October the 6th. And it, it's, it's it's a long chat, this one as well. I think we, we went for about 90 minutes and we could have gone on for double that because her life's fascinating and stories about incredible artists and and yeah, I can't wait for you to hear it. But before we, we, we get on with it, a few thank yous. So... I want to thank Scroobius Pip, everybody at the Distraction Pieces Network, which this podcast is proud to be part of. Big thanks to the um, the team at the Blue Murder Club podcast uh, who produced this uh, podcast. And, and that podcast, go check it out if you like your true crimes. Blue Murder Club, go give that a listen. If it's your first time listening to Off The Beaten Track, then um, hello, um, you've missed loads. Uh, well over 500 episodes now. Um, so when you finish this chat with Sarah... Um, why not go and explore the back catalogue? Because, uh, well, there's a, a real who's who of um, fascinating guests that are all been on talking about their favourite records and their stories. And uh, from huge rock bands like the Foo Fighters and the Killers and Motley Crue through to uh, fantastic um, actors like David Duchovny, Maxine Peake, Joe Hartley, Thomas Turgoose, uh, through to fantastic indie bands like the Kaiser Chiefs, the Kooks. Um, oh, God, who else have I done? Fatboy Slim, Public Enemy. Oh, the list is endless. Comedians like Acaster and Ed Gamble. Oh, blimey. I'll, I'll tell you what, I could be here all day. So the best thing to do is when you listen, uh, when you get to the end of this episode, go and check out that back catalogue. 
Um, you can get it wherever you get your podcasts and they're all free. So go get stuck in. Um, I'm going to tell you quickly about my Patreon. That's the bit where you get to uh, support the podcast uh, over there. And it's a dollar. It's about 70p a month. And that gets you access to loads of uh, back catalogue content, hundreds of radio shows, hundreds of episodes, um, weekly playlists and mixtapes, um, a monthly live show where you get a chance to, to be on the podcast as well. You get to come and join this amazing chat over on Zoom where a lovely little gang of us all get together and, and we just pick a little topic and we have a, a lovely little chat and we release that as well. You can go and listen to uh, a couple of them if you want to get a taste for it. Uh, and also, you get to watch all the episodes over there. I release the videos of all of these chats. So if you'd like to watch your pods, then head over to patreon.com off the beat and track. It's beat and not beaten. Uh, and your one-stop shop for all of these things is the website, which is off the beat and track podcast.com. Right, let's get on with the good stuff. Please enjoy today's episode of Off the Beat and Track Podcast with the delightful Sarah Jane Morris. It's Off the Beat and Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. With me, Stu Whiffin. Okay, we are recording. Sarah J. Morris, how are you today? I'm very well, thanks. There's a bit of a slight, slight blue sky amongst the clouds here in London. Lovely, lovely. Um, well, we was talking a moment ago before we press record, and uh, and you was talking about uh, home in St. Leonard's, which is a, a beautiful part of the world. And you mentioned that it was a good place to be uh, during the, the the sort of the the lockdown time. So, before we get on to your your playlist um yeah talk me through how you found those times both both personally and creatively okay it ended up we, we literally moved house the summer at the end of the summer before covid so we were just sort of settling in we took on a, a converted shop it had originally been a pub and it was a shop and it was on a street corner, right bang in the middle of St. Leonard's, two roads down to the sea. And so um, being near the sea, I became a cold water swimmer, which really helped. And meant that I met a wonderful, I met a wonderful group of people, which uh, made us feel very much part of the community very, very quickly. But also that cold water swimming made me feel very alive and it helped me through because I was someone that was, had been booked in for a new knee, a knee replacement. And of course, COVID stopped that. Sure. So I had to try and um, carry on being fit, but without doing too much walking. And uh, creatively, I was in a, in a house that needed me to make my mark on it. But also I had a lot of time on my hand. I don't have a television, haven't had a television for 14 years. So my husband and I, we read to each other a great deal. And uh, I did both things. I did... Uh, decorating of the house, which I've done in a quite a creative way. I'm I'm a lover of the paint of Vuillard, which is all about different textiles and, and clashing of, of patterns. And that's how I dress and it's it's how I decorate. So I got very involved with that, having to buy everything on, on eBay and market, Facebook marketplace and such sure. like. But it was a great test. But creatively, because I don't have a television and because we read to each other a lot, my husband and I said to each other from we have two sofas opposite each other. Why don't we find well it was my idea, 
why don't I find out about the lives of, of, of 10 female singer-songwriters that I feel changed musical history? They're obviously my choice, not everybody else's choice, but they were an interesting choice. And I chose Bessie Smith, Billie Holiday, um, Nina Simone, Miriam McCaber, Aretha Franklin, Janis Joplin, Joni Mitchell, Ricky Lee Jones, Annie Lennox and Kate Bush, all of them very, very different. But what I did was I bought off Amazon, um, I bought uh, biographies, autobiographies, went onto YouTube, watched any footage of any documentary, listened to any music that I could get hold of of each of those singers and really absorbed myself in their lives for that long period of time. And I fell in love with their journeys. I already loved their music, but their all of their journeys were fascinating. And, and a lot of them really did change political history not just musical history and so i wrote very respectfully wrote their life stories and then my co-writer tony remy who played in annie's annie lennox's band for many years when she went solo he it was a point where we could be three meters apart so we measured the three meters the sofa was, was three meters apart my brother who's a filmmaker was behind a chair three meters apart and I read all of these lyrics to Tony. He'd come down, he'd learned how to use logic recording on his computer in the first lockdown. And he, he, what he did was uh, he brought his, his laptop with logic on, he bought his guitar, his acoustic guitar, and he bought um, a MIDI keyboard. I bought a decent microphone. So I was sitting the other side with my microphone because I did a lot of virtual concerts because my son, his business went down the pan just before COVID. He moved home. He's a singer-songwriter. So he and I did these virtual concerts uh, all the way through lockdown. So I'd got a decent mic and I read these lyrics to Tony to give him an idea about what I'd found out about these amazing singers. And we both at the same time said, why don't we write the music in the genre of the singer? So that the Joni Mitchell song sounds like a Joni Mitchell song, but it's about her life and so on. And that was when we got really excited and we thought, God, this will call on everything we have ever learned. We have both been in South African township bands. We've been in in Latin bands, in in classical, folk, rock, pop. We had all of that to call on at our fingertips. And we wrote each song, each song, Obviously, we, we, we fine-tuned it all, but we wrote each song within an hour and, and because we knew what to do. It was, it was a language we understood. And it got us through lockdown. And it became this, this ongoing project, which I'm sure is going to take up the next several years of my life. It's already now taken up two and a half years. But I had to then, because Brexit came along, most of my careers in Europe, that destroyed my career. COVID then came along meant no concerts. I didn't have in my bank account what I normally keep, I normally keep aside 50% of everything I earn to make the next album because I run my own label. I do it all myself. I hadn't got that. So I then had to think so outside the box as to how to fund the album. And that was, that became uh, uh, creative writing courses in my home where people came to stay my husband did the cooking, fine art programs, you know, where weekends where people came to learn to draw and paint that he taught because he's an artist. I did uh, vocal masterclasses where people came for an entire weekend, about 20 people. Uh, and then they, and then I taught them my backing vocals. So they came and sung at Ronnie Scott's with me. I did bartering sessions with Guy Chambers where I did vocals for him and he let me have a 
couple of days in his studio. Uh, I made, somebody gave me a sewing machine in lockdown. I learned how to use it and I made cushion covers, tablecloths, sold them on Marketplace and, and eBay. My friend Wendy May, uh, the wonderful DJ who lives down here, anything I couldn't do that was more complicated, like curtains and things, she made. And and all of those things have paid for this album to be completed. And uh, it's been the most amazing creative period. And it came out of that lockdown where you suddenly had the time to, to, to think in a different way. Uh, and, so that's uh, remarkable. And- Absolutely remarkable. I mean, I've asked this question maybe three, four hundred times to guests, certainly during the lockdown. Nobody has ever answered it so fantastically. And and just, you know, we, we I often speak about, you know, when, when the things that you need are taken away from you in, creatively that, you know, the punk in you comes out and you, you go, DIY, right, what can I do here? What have I got at my disposal? Yeah. And it's going to, you know, be that sort of punk approach as to, like, this is what I've got, what can I do? I mean, yeah. you've, you've took that and you've run with it. It's like, I mean, the the, the, the thing that I've just took from that is, right, I'm going to throw me telly away when I get in tonight. Like, and, <laughs> and the fact that you and your husband sit on opposite sofas and read to each other. Read to each other. That's beautiful. It's, it is, I love that. It is a lovely thing. And, and, and um, the reason why I decided to try and, do this project with Mark was the the Christmas that went before that second lockdown because we hadn't earned any money for such a long time Christmas presents to anybody including each other was out of the question so what we decided was we'd write each other a poem his poem to me was so beautiful I remember thinking oh my god you're a great writer so I said to him if you could only write another couple of verses I'm going to turn that into a song and I did and that was the beginning of us sort of creatively uh, combining our talents. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Um, well, look, let's, 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 we're talking songs. Let's, let's start your playlist today. And I'm going to ask yeah. you, Sarah, for track one to tell me the song that you regard as having the greatest ever intro, please. Well, I was, you know, I grew up in the 70s. That's my teen years. It was the best decade for music. You know, you had everything from Captain Beefheart to Sly and the Family Stone to Frank Zappa to uh, the Bee Gees to Tamla Motown to Stax. You know, it was it was all there. And uh, and I've called on all of that in this project too. You know, everything that I listened to at that point. But I was hugely, um, hugely influenced by you know, that whole soul period. I, I was a northern soul girl myself, you know, and I was one of those people doing backflips at, 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 at um, you know, in up at the Wigan Casino. Oh, fantastic. Uh, telling, telling my mum that I'd gone to my friend Lorraine's and her telling her mum she'd gone to mine and we were on a bus up to Wigan, you know. But um, what what I... I've, this particular song that I've chosen is not only because it's got this fantastic introduction but because lyrically it means something to me because when i was 17 years old i come from a big family i've got six brothers my dad went to prison and um it 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 split up the family we lost our home you know it, it changed our lives forever you know everything goes back to then when we had to reinvent ourselves and i was even talking with my brother yesterday who's part of my project he does all the filming side of things and we were trying to we were talking to somebody else that I was filming as part of my project and saying, 
we both said that that our life changed when dad went to prison and and a lot of that is because also you as the child of of that and it's a lot to do with the way you're treated at school uh, uh, you know how teachers aren't there to to support you as this family that's crumbling was that you carry the guilt you the child carry that guilt you know and i was saying that that for me one of the biggest insults anyone could pay me was to to make out that i was ripping them off and it all goes back to that thing of of the father that had been in prison you know it's like oh god well that's you isn't it and um it it, it stays with you and this song the song that i've chosen that has the best intro is papa was a rolling stone by the temptations and it's that man that i recognize as being my dad that's fantastic and what an intro that is as well it it, it... yeah the strings on that are quite sort of claustrophobic, aren't they? It kind of, yes. it, it really sort of crawls all over you as as, as that starts to kind of open up. And it up. just but gradually builds up one by one by mm. one, you know. Yeah, oh, extraordinary. And, and that was such a sort of a, an exciting time for for Motan and probably much against Barry Gordy's kind of uh vision really because i think you know when you started to see what the temptations were doing and um, and obviously famously what marvin gay was doing with what's going on i think berry gordy was like no this this is this ain't what it's about this is not what motown's about we're a you know this kind of incredible pop machine we, of, we don't uh, want your social comment we don't yes. want social comment <laughs> we don't want this psychedelic nonsense but yeah you yeah. know, they go on to be the most, some of the most iconic records, and certainly what's going on the biggest selling record in the history of Motown. And absolutely, yeah, glorious, glorious. Okay, I'm going to ask you now for track two to tell me the first song you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you, please, Sarah. Well, I I can remember getting my um, I, I had a tight one of those tiny little. Or plastic record players, you know, and uh, and uh, you know, so any anything that I could save up my, I was I was a, a um, uh, I washed up in hotels to start with. Then I um, did waitressing, and I became a silver surface waitress. And in those days, you could where, do where, it where was this, Sarah? By the way, where, where was growing but, up? Well, it was all over the place because with a dad like that, it meant you were often. Uh, moving in the middle of the night uh, to, to dodge the official receivers coming to get your furniture the next morning. Um, so our life was, I went to 13 schools and this move in St. Leonard's was my 37th move. So um, wow. a lot of that moving happened in, in my childhood and I wasn't expelled from any school, but we, we were constantly moving. You know, we were renters. There was no money. Uh, we were a big family. And uh, he lived his life balanced on that that knife edge, you know, of between right and wrong. And, uh, you know, we thought he was God, but um, it was very disrupting. And luckily, because we're a big family, whenever we were starting a new school, there were often quite a few of us starting at the same time. So we could kind of meet up in the break times to kind of give each other support. But it, it was it was pretty tough. But um, so at this particular point where I would have heard this song and been moved by it, it was, uh, we were living in, um, in the Midlands and, uh, the school that I was at, it was one of those schools that had an intake from 
uh, an RAF and CAD. Um, we were out of the area, but it was the best sort of comprehensive school in the area. So I, I think we spent most of our time, you know, constantly saying to the school secretary, no, no, we are moving into the area. And of course, never did. Yeah. But found our way of, of getting to school. And in fact, the way we got to school, this is an interesting story. So uh, my mum, uh, when I was 14, mum had uh, the last baby. And uh, she was in the, she was in the hospital, having the, her baby in the hospital in, in Leamington Spa. And the school bus went um, all the way to Leamington and everybody had been dropped off, you know, half an hour before. It's just happened. That's where the depot was. And so I caught the school bus all the way back because I wanted to see mum every day that she was in hospital before she had the baby. And I got talking. They were lovely old guys. One, They're probably not old. They're probably my age, actually. But then it seemed like they were old guys. One driving and one was the conductor. And we must have got talking and I told them about how mum was having a baby. And they said, do you know what? We drive past your house every morning. We could pick you all up. This was totally illegal. But they did from then on. They stopped outside. This is a double-decker bus. It stopped outside our bus. And sometimes some of us weren't even dressed. And mum would bring toast out and a cup of tea to them to kind of apologise for the fact that we still we weren't all in uniform. That that was that was how we went to secondary school was through these brilliant men. And mum every year gave them a good birthday present and Christmas present. But it was totally illegal what they were doing. But that's how we managed to keep up this pretense of living in the area. That's we fantastic. Did. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, this the song that I chose. Was, and I ended up by, by writing songs with this wonderful man uh, when I signed my first record deal. But the, his voice and the fact that he was using a ukulele and, 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 and what he was singing about was just so gentle and beautiful. I, I was moved. It's, it Must Be Love by Lavi Sifri, which, which later on became a hit for Madness. Yeah. But it was his version that touched me. And then when I signed to Jive Records for my first uh, solo deal, they teamed me up with him and I went and stayed with him in Wales with him and his husband and um, did some co-writing with him. And it was a very lovely experience. He's a beautiful human being. Oh, what a voice he has as well. Yeah. And he's written some very important songs. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I want to ask, before we get on to the song that reminds you of school, I just, you know, the, the way that you described your upbringing and, and, and you know, and your dad's kind of uh, sort of brushes with, uh, with with the law and such, like, you know, it, it, it sounds like, you know, as, as an outsider looking in that, you know, if that was made into a film, it would be a, you know, a, a, a you know, a, a kind of almost like a sort of kitchen sink black comedy. You know, uh, yeah. But I imagine the actual realities of it, of going to thir- was it thirteen different schools? Yeah. I mean, that's that's pretty disruptive, and like, and and yeah. and and tell me how that sort of impacted on you as a person, and also, you know, did. Because I mean, we've been speaking for for twenty minutes now, and and I've never met you before, and 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 you you come across with such confidence and 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 such charisma. Is 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 that confidence something that that, that come from having to 
put yourself out there when when you know you're going to these different schools you know time and time again surrounded by strangers having to go got to do this again now and and you know having to sort of hold your own and, and get stuck in tell me a little bit about yeah. them times and how that took it sort of you know how, how that was for you it was it, it it was terrifying you know that 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 first day at a new school is is utterly terrifying i did have you know, I had red hair, I had a big mouth, you know, all those sort of obvious things to tease someone about, you know. Um, uh, I would blush very, very quick, easily. Um, um, add freckles, that was also considered not a, not a great thing. So all of those things I was carrying with me. And I knew that I came from this very uh, unconventional home. You know, I mean, our, like, for instance, our, our transport, Dad, we didn't have a normal car. Dad bought a job lot of bubble cars from a garage. They hadn't, it hadn't worked as an idea. So we were, we as kids were illegally driving these bubble cars. We had Feinkels and Messerschmitts. We had one each. Okay. I mean, this this has got to be turned into a film. This is this is absolute crackers. <laughs> And, and and this is how mad he was. Okay, so he had he had one. He had a he had a, a Heinkel, and and they look like they look like an egg that opens up. And at Easter, what he did was he wrapped a crepe bow around it so that it was a bloody Easter egg that we would be getting out of, you know. And and there was one. Um, we lived quite a long way at this point when he had these bubble cars. We lived quite a long way from where you'd catch a bus. So you had to walk for an hour and a half, uh, a mile and a half before you got the bus. And and sometimes we were flooded in the village. And so, you know, you'd, he'd be trying to get you to the bus so that you didn't have, you know, because you couldn't cross. So you'd be floating over this sort of river. Then it would get back out. And then he'd chase the bus down the main road, get up onto the pavement. The bus would stop at the bus stop and he'd open the egg and you'd get out of the egg onto the bus. Now you try living that down. <laughs> impossible <laughs> it, that was that was it was things like that that were really really embarrassing you know and we were always the family that because he was his timekeeping was bad you'd go off on a school excursion or there'd be something happening at school and you'd be there two hours after everybody had gone home and one poor teacher had to stay and wait you know well your dad then arrived in the bubble car and you know that that was the story of our life I don't know how this happened, but at one point he managed to convince some company to, I think this was a shared job where he shared the use of a helicopter. Okay. We're talking, we had no money. So this is all done on, on, he, he sounded like he could be the Lord of the Manor. He came from a rich family originally. So he had the confidence that goes with public school or whatever that is, you know, so he could he could walk into the store uh, uh, like a uh, that's how we we um, furnished our places. He would walk into a new uh, furniture store and get all the furniture on HP. He'd never pay a single month, but then that's why the furniture there that would then be taken away. Cool. But he had that confidence and that voice, and everybody thought, you know, oh, of course he he must be he must be terribly wealthy. Of course we'll do this, you know. And that worked for him, but it also worked against him because eventually he did go to prison. Yeah. But 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 he managed to, for a short period of time, um, share this helicopter with someone. 
And there was one, this was the time that I don't think we ever really got over this one. Okay. So he was supposed to be picking us up to take us to the dentist. So this is during school time. Yeah. And from then on, we never, ever met it. We, we, we would always walk for about a mile away from the school if we ever had to be met with him after this. Without permission, he landed his helicopter in the middle of a game of rugby <laughs> to pick us up. Can you imagine? I wasn't thinking about that. Oh, We're my in a God. normal comprehensive school. How the hell We're did you get through school? Oh my God! That we had no money. We didn't live in a house that was owned, but he managed to pull that off. That's insane. I mean, <laughs> let's let, 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 let's talk school. Uh, <laughs> tell me, tell me the track that reminds you of uh, of, of of those times, which sounds okay. surreal. <laughs> so, one of the schools that I landed in in year three in secondary school was this Kyneton High School and this song had just come out and I just thought that this singer was just so amazing I loved the way he he was it was very gender fluid now we know that as a term now I didn't know it then and uh, and uh, and it was just so out there and so different to anything else I'd ever heard. And what I did was I wrote in my best handwriting because I won an all England handwriting competition. Okay, for platinum pens the year before, so I'd got this beautiful uh, platinum pen, and um, I wrote in my best handwriting the lyrics of this out for every single member of my class. And I suppose it was possibly my way of trying to to say hello to everyone and fit yeah. in. Um, it was Life on Mars by David Bowie. Oh, that'd do it, wouldn't it? Oh, what a record. What, what a, a record. record. And, I mean, tell me the, the, the sort of impact that, you know, seeing Bowie at that point on, on Top of the Pops and things like that, tell me about, you know, how that impacted on, on, on someone, you know, in the sort of formative years. Well, I loved how he dressed. You see, I've always loved costume, and uh, uh, and I loved his look. And uh, what I loved about that first period of his career was was you know the fact that he created this character in yeah. a way. Someone else that I love the music of Tom Waits. He created a character very early yeah, yeah, on. Yeah. That he stayed with, and you know he he made that go on for a lot longer than 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 Bowie did Ziggy. But um, it's he 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 was extraordinary looking beautiful and handsome both beautiful and handsome yeah. that like i was saying before that that gender fluidity which you know later i explored in the songs that i wrote about annie lennox and about kate bush they both i could tell you can tell that they were influenced by bowie too yeah in 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 and how they did their videos and how they presented themselves you know and and also with the whole mime the mime thing that he very much got into. Um, he was an extraordinary person that couldn't be categorised, and I love, I love the fact that you couldn't categorise him. Absolutely. Absolutely. I went to see him in concert um, just to that point that he was he, he went off to America and he came back and he killed Ziggy. And I went to this, this concert and everybody had come dressed as Ziggy. And he was in a very different 
costume and a very different period of his music and the audience didn't know quite what to do probably a bit like when dylan you know killed killed acoustic and went electric it's like that there was an audience that didn't know what to do with this they knew it was something amazing but they couldn't they weren't quite there yeah and and and, and sarah in regards to, to to school um did you have any idea what you wanted to do no, absolutely not. So it I, I was I was also talking to a friend about this the other day, because you know you're 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 given, you know, the odd half hour where you talk about what could be a career afterwards. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost fifty pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. For me, you know, all I was told I could be was an air stewardess or a policewoman. You know, that was what was being presented to me in those talks about what to do at school. And and I didn't I had I never did music at school, whichever school I went to. It was always um, it was always you could choose between art or music or, or, or another subject that I really needed to do. So I always did art, you know, ceramic and and graphics and I mean that I think I thought I was going to be going to art school yeah that was what I was going to be doing until uh you know I'm halfway through my a-levels and dad goes to prison and and I had a breakdown um I I had uh had a really this is very this is very very bad headship but we had a head teacher a woman head teacher at this point I think years later it, it it came out in the press that there were many backstories to this woman, but at this point that she was the head teacher, and so we'd lost our home. And Mum was a secretary in a in a school, and she must have broken down in the the um, the common room. And it was the religious education teacher that came to her aid and said, "Look, the the church owns the schoolhouse." Um, I think that's free. It's only two bedrooms, but but it's going to be a, somewhere. So we were living on, on church charity in this little schoolhouse. Okay, and um, Mum 
had she had to work over because dad had made us all directors of his one of these companies that was one of the things that took him to prison we were all underage so the only way mum could stop the social services taking us all away because we were all under 18 was to make us wards of court so um that you know she had a really difficult time and she'd got a tiny baby okay so i she she started doing she started doing this new um an evening class at the local college and it was called tea line uh, so it was a new form of shorthand because she'd been very very good at sh- other shorthands and so she she'd done two uh sessions and they'd had so uh, so much demand for this new tea line that they were having to create uh, new, new lessons for it. And they said to her, look, you're so good at this. I know you've only done two sessions, but is there any way that you carry on coming and learning, but you are teaching what you've just learnt because we think you could be a great teacher? She couldn't turn that down because how else was she going to feed you know, all of these kids and the baby. So I had to be that person that would come home from school straight away and look after my the baby brother so that she could go, at this point, I think Tom was three, was three years old, so that she could go off to do her evening class and then teach. So I, had, I went in, a, a sixth form privilege at this comprehensive was what you could choose all sorts of things. And I had chosen sailing. You know, when was I ever going to learn to sail otherwise? So, but it was quite a long way away from the school and you had to go off on a coach. I knew I couldn't do that. So I went to the head teacher and I said, look, Miss Barnes, this, I have to go home. I have to look after my brother because mum has to go and, and teach. She said, no, this is a sixth form privilege. You have to do it. So she knew I would hide because I had to go and do that. Yeah. But what a what a horrible thing for her to have done. So I went and hid in the common room because I knew I had to get on the bus. She came and found me there. The next day, she said to, uh, you know, in assembly, we have a liar and a cheat in our midst. And she made me stand up, okay? I had a breakdown. I thought, the I felt I was being blamed for my father, for everything. I didn't ever go back to school. And I thought everybody was talking about me. My poor mum, she was already having to deal with in the local shop where she could buy food, where you paid at the end of the month on tick, you know, on tap. Um, she was already knowing that every time she went into the village shop, people stopped talking. It was obviously they were talking about her, our family. We were that family. And um, so I had to, to, I had to rethink, you know, what, what the hell was I going to do? And, um, after, you know, I think it was probably about three or four months, I realised I had to continue my education. And this is where it all changed for me. The local college was Stratford-on-Avon. You either went to Leamington or Stratford. And it was one of, it was the day where you have to sign up for a course. So I went in on the bus. But I was still, if somebody so much as looked at me, I was still doing that terrible blushing you know, I was still carrying all of this guilt from dad and the breakdown and everything. And I didn't have the confidence to go in and sign on. I didn't know what I was going to sign on to, but I knew I had to go in and be part of some kind of education. So I went round to the back of the building to try to, you know, to breathe, 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 calm down, calm down. And there was a guy leaning against the wall about the age of my father 
smoking a cigarette. And he said, uh, hello, what are you doing? And I, I explained that I was trying to calm down. I must, he was nice to me. I told him my life story. And he said, you're supposed to come here. This, this behind me, this is the drama studio. I'm the, I run the drama department. It turned out he was the leading authority on Bertolt Brecht in the country. He had set up the first theatre and education college, of course, which was this. Um, and he said, you have been alienated. Brecht is all about alienation. You need to be doing this course. I never had to go round and sign on. He took me on, on his, under his wing and he became like that. He became like a father figure. And he was my introduction to socialism. And uh, I was able to express myself and help to um, write plays. I was in Ben Elton's first ever production. He was the year above me. Ben Elton was on this wow. course. Um, and I was in his first play. And I was able to write a song about um, being an outsider, which was how I felt. And it's how I felt my entire journey. But I've learned how to... To, to think, re realize it's a good thing to be an outsider, to not tick all the boxes. They're, they're, now, they're, they're the interesting uh, ones. Yeah, I now wear it as a, as a, it's, it's something to be proud of. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Not many people have got a story like what you've just said. Uh, um, so you, you talk about confidence and, you know, and, and the struggles that you might have had and, and, and feeling sort of, you know, like the, the people around were, were judging you and such. And my introduction to Sarah Jane Morris would have been when I was probably 14, 15, and, and it would have been, you know, seeing you on the television. And uh, yeah. that looked like a, a very confident person to me uh, at that point. Tell me, tell me a little bit about, I mean, we've also mentioned the impact of seeing Bowie on Top of the Pops and that. I'm always interested, like, did you get to do Top of the Pops uh, at that point? So I got to, um, when I was in the Communards, we were number one for, I think it was eight weeks. So we got to be on Top of the Pops four times. And like you said, when you're watching, you know, as a young person watching it, Top of the Pops looks huge, doesn't yeah. it? It looks like there were so many stages. I remember being really shocked, suddenly finding myself in not a very big room, with only a couple of stages, and and uh, and also at the point that that Jimmy and I, and Richard and I were doing Top of the Pops, I'm sure it changed lots of different points you had where people played live. That's right. But we at, at our point, you were miming. Mm. Jimmy and I could really sing, mm. and and we found this quite frustrating. You know, just we got quite good at doing the miming to our own parts, but by at this point, I think we'd been at number one for about six weeks. And we, I don't think we really even said anything about it. We just were a bit bored by by being trapped like this. And so I mimed to Jimmy's part and he mimed to mine. <laughs> and we were called up over the coals. We were pulled up to the, you know, the the the, the director's office and told that had we not been at number one, we would have been pulled and never come back on, Fantastic. you know, uh, and, uh, you know, we really were reprimanded, you know, but I think we wanted to make a point of, Hey, this is, this is not for real. I'm, I'm going to pick back up on top of the pops because it's something that, you know, so many of us, it's had such a huge impact on, on so many of us on, on so many different levels. And I will pick back up on that. But in, in the meantime, 
I'm going to ask you for your fourth track, uh, Sarah, which is the first um, record you bought from a record store. Yeah, so the first single that I'd saved up my my uh, chambermaiding money from was the the fantastic Rocket Man by Elton John. Oh, what a record! And what a record indeed. And I loved. I I do remember years later. Kate Bush did a great cover. She did, of that. didn't she? And I loved her version of it. It was fantastic. It almost had a sort of like a reggae undertow, if I remember rightly. Kate yeah. Bush's version. Yeah. It had that kind of sort of skank um, to it. Exactly. Well, well, I mean, I, she she comes from the same school as me. I was, you know, I mean, it's very rare that she's ever covered a song because she writes all of her stuff. But you don't cover a song unless you change it and you claim it and you make it your own. Well, you mentioned some of the artists that you've been studying, and when you mentioned Annie Lennox. Um, it was only about a year ago in lockdown. I was recording little radio shows to keep myself sane during during lockdown, and and I stumbled across the original of "No More I Love You's," which I didn't realise was a cover. And I I absolutely love the original. I think it's an, an a, a fantastic piece of kind of late eighties sort of pop production. Um, and and then I've done a bit of a dive on them because I was like, okay, what's, what's the deal? And I believe that they supported the Eurythmics, uh, if I'm right. You, you're probably the, the, the expert on this. And then I presume through that time that, that Annie must have obviously heard that song. And then... Oh, wow. I don't know the history of that. Yeah. That's that's fantastic. <laughs> wow. But, wow. yeah, because uh, I was like, because it's not on Spotify – um, what is it? It's a lover speaks, I think, is is the the, the name of the artist that that, that yes, done it first. yes, 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 yes. And uh, and yeah, then I was like, so what, why have I never heard of them? I'm, I'm a real nerd for music, and and yeah, they but they did support Eurythmics, and I was like, that's where Annie's heard that track. And then I uh, think yeah. years later, he was a songwriter as well, and I don't know if they worked together, but yeah, she must have used that track from remembering it from when they. But I mean, what, what 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 an extraordinary voice and songwriter she is and uh, and one of the things in the song that I've written about her that I really I mean really wanted to show was what a what a pioneer she's been and how how she's carried on fighting for um for women's rights for she is she is that you know human rights spokesperson you know she That's is good. she she puts her money where her mouth is and uh uh, I, I think she's an extraordinary woman. I, I've, I've only met her, uh, I met her very, very early on when she, uh, in fact, I met her a couple of times, once at an airport, because we were both going off doing various TVs. And, uh, the, but the first time was, it was when she she and she just, they just uh, closed down the tourists and um, set up the Eurythmics, and they just got their studio. And I don't know whether I even owned it at this point. And uh, I was um, with a friend of mine called Mitch Bins. Uh, he had written a three-hander based on uh, the scandalous book Hollywood Babylon, and he'd called it Hollywood Dreams, and he'd written as a three-hander musical to go to the Edinburgh Festival. I was one of the the, the three. And... Uh, he played, he played Marilyn Monroe and Marilyn Dietrich. You know, he liked being in the dress, and he got a good pair of legs as well, and and a great voice. And I played 
What did I play? I played Fatty Arbuckle. Fatty Arbuckle. I played Francis Farmer. I played Hedda Hopper. Um, but anyway, it was a great piece. And we were just, it was singing in a wine bar in Chalk Farm. And they both came in. And of course, we knew them from Top of the Pops, from the tourists. And they sat at the bar and had a cocktail. And they got talking to Mitch, particularly. And he and um, said that they needed some backing vocals. But they didn't have any money. And so a bartering was done where uh, backing vocals were done for a track uh, in lieu of a day in their studio to record the musical before we went to the Edinburgh Festival. Wow. Uh, and Dave was the engineer. And he was very, very friendly and lovely. But uh, And then my guitarist, Tony, was in her band for many years. And he said that she was the most fantastic band leader because she was part of their education. He said that when they all went to South Africa, because obviously she became friends with Nelson Mandela, you know, she's that kind of person. And they went out to do uh, um, the Nelson Mandela concert in South Africa. And she made sure the entire band came with her to um, a hospital full of AIDS patients and uh, understood how all of that worked. And she set up her charity, Sing, which which is about educating women in South Africa as to how to protect themselves in in, in a climate where HIV is, is, is huge. You know, um, so I, I just think that she's a remarkable woman, and um, and, and it's important, Sarah, that, that these artists, certainly women as well, that are that are speaking out in an industry where you're encouraged to toe the line. Shush, you do what you do, yeah. and yeah. you know we're only seeing now, and 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 people are now applauding Sinead O'Connor for how outspoken she was, and and yeah. how she done, you know, she she spoke out and kicked back against things. At the time, you know, absolutely, yeah. they they ruined her, you know. And they absolutely that, did, that, and and she was one of the she was one of the sisters. She was one of the people I was going to write about, and and I remember thinking, she's so on a she's balanced on an edge. I don't want to be responsible for pushing her over the edge. Yeah. If if I wrote because I've only ever written anything that's is that's totally respectful to any of these singers, but I didn't know quite what place she was at, but I knew she was fragile, yeah. and so I chose not to write it. But I have actually now written her song. Oh, fantastic! But I I so I I met her. Um, it it was a fantastic uh, concert. It was called What Women Want. It was organised by Lynn Franks, the PR. Um, guru and Janet Street Porter was was linked with it and was filming it, and it was uh, it was Zap Mama, it was Sinead, it was um, Chrissy Hind, um, uh, myself, all sorts of wonderful people, and there was a press conference for 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 this, and so there's this this, this photograph with Glenis Kinnock, uh, Chrissy Hind. Um, uh, Sinead, myself, and Lynn Franks. I had a three-month-old baby, uh, Otis. He was in my arms for this photo session. And Sinead suddenly said, oh, I'm so Brody, please can I hold him? So she held him. And do you know what? All of the photographs that went around were Sinead holding my son, saying it was her, this was her love child. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> so Otis loves this, you know, the fact that People think the Sinead is his mum. But uh, it was quite disturbing at the time for me because 
it was my only child. Yeah. <laughs> I was only three months into it, and suddenly it was in the Times and you name it. The Sinead's love, you know, sort of secret child. Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> okay. But yeah, I, I think I think I think she was incredibly brave. Um she she was telling the truth. It was proved all those years later that, that, that there was such terrible sexual corruption within the church. Absolutely. Um, she was incredibly honest about her her struggling with her mental health issues, and she did bring it to the fore. And um, I, I think she's she also her voice is is extraordinary. Um, I think everything she's ever sung has been. So powerful yet so gentle. Yeah. She's she's able to put both of those things into a piece. Absolutely. And uh, you know, I loved the album that she did with with Christy Moore. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, and the song that I've written about her is 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 like a beautiful Irish lament. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. Right, track five. Let's go clubbing. Tell me the song that soundtrack your years clubbing, please, Sarah. So, um... normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I, like I said, I was a Northern Soul girl, and Lorraine and I lied to our parents and got on a bus and were continually going to the Wiggins Casino, and we learned how to backflip. We, we did it all on water. We, did, we weren't, you know, using anything, but we loved to dance all night, and we learned to do that kind of side shuffle. And one of the songs that, that I remember dancing to the most during that period, um, actually, no, I'll tell you a bit more. So also, where we lived, there was a club called The Globe in Warwick, mm-hmm. which was open on a, on a Sunday night that, that played... Motown, Stax, you know, black music, which was what we were far more interested in than anything. And uh, so every Sunday night we were at the Globe, but as often as we were able to, we were up um, at at the Wigan Casino. And there was also a place called Chesford Grange that we used to go to and dance around our handbags. And this song, My Man is a Sweet Man by Millie Jackson, was one of those songs that years, years later, I went to see Millie Jackson at the Odeon. And she was so utterly outrageous. It was like that. there's no one else out there that, that, that such 
wonderful filth comes out of the mouth of in, in, um, but as many words as Bobby Womack uses in, in his yeah. songs it's it's all it's it's a woman being sexual and I hadn't heard that before you know except for Bessie Smith and her blues and her claiming her her sexuality yeah. I hadn't really heard it in the same way as Millie Jackson and it was like wow this is just fantastic absolutely absolutely i remember being i think i was probably about 14 or 15 uh and seeing the cover of uh back to the shit and just thinking oh my god who's who's this millie jackson this is this is wild and like yeah and uh and and obviously you know when, when you're young and 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 you're you're kind of finding your way you're always drawn to the stuff that's a bit more kind of exciting dangerous and 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 yeah, I think Millie Jackson represented that perfectly. Absolutely. She's just claiming it all. <laughs> Don't mess with me. Absolutely. Well, <laughs> t- t- tell me a little bit, um, j- just sort of, you know, being a number one for, for the amount of time that, that, that you was, how yeah. did it go from, you know, being a a, a musician that, that, that had a, you know, a, a, a good career to, to being a super recognisable face in a period of weeks, like from being on, you yeah. know, when you're in somebody's front room every Thursday night and you're at number one, like how do you, how did you deal with that? It was a very odd transition because everything I'd done up until that point was um, being part of a, I, I was with the Republic, which was an African Caribbean Latin band before the use, you used the word, well, you know, world music. Yeah. Uh, or, or the term world music and we were signed to Charlie Gillett's label and Charlie Gillett was uh, a, a fantastic radio DJ but he he kind of wrote many interesting books but he signed Lena Lovitch I think he had Ian Jury you know people came and took his they came and stole his artists yeah. you know Stiff was forever taking you know whoever Charlie had signed but he was very much behind that whole world music scene and so we were, I mean, our first single was Anti the Malvinas War and our second one was the Royal Family. And so we were, you know, we were the band that was supposed to happen. We were the cover of the NME. We were the cover of City Limits. Granada TV did a documentary about us. We were too political in the time of Thatcher's Britain. So that just didn't happen. We didn't get radio play. That, that, that split up. And it became two groups. It became Three Mustafas Three, which was a fantastic band, and The Happy End, which was a twenty-five piece political big band, where we did we did um we did music political music from all over the world. It was a mixture of men and women, some who'd only just bought their instrument. So it was it was um you know, some people could play some very very well and some people were just learning. But it was giving people the opportunity. And that was amazing because in that period, you knew that your audience for people you wanted to know, it was so right on. And we, at that point during the miners' strike, we then um, collaborated with a Kent miners' wife called Kay Sutcliffe, who'd written these fantastic lyrics. And we then recorded it and arranged it. And it became the anthem of the miners' strike, Cold Not Dole. And, and it was at that point that, that Jimmy and I were connected and we were connected through Richard Coles, who was my brother, the filmmaker, Rod Morris's friend at the same drama college I'd gone to um, 
four years later, they were both there and became friends. And Richard used to bring, you know, come along to my concerts uh, with, with the Happy End, with the Republic. He joined the tail end of Bronsky Beat with with Jimmy, and then they formed the Communards. Was now, this Jimmy when and Bronsky Beat were doing the benefit the minors, gigs yeah. for the miners, and you see, yeah, and Jimmy's best friend was Mark Ashton, who was the person they made that film, The Pride. That's Pride right. About. That's right. And he was he was also part of our political education. You know, he was so out there. You know, we thought we were already political, nothing compared to him. And he came out to America with us when we recorded that first Communards album. And and he was just so inspirational, Mark Ashton. And so he, yeah, he got Jimmy involved in all of that. And Richard brought Jimmy along to see me at one of these benefits. And I, of course, knew him through Bronsky Beat. You know, he was very, very recognisable. But we, we were, you know, we got on instantly. And it was this thing of... You know, I'm this very tall, red-headed woman with a low voice, and he's a very petite, uh, red-headed man with a terribly high voice. Yeah. And it was this wonderful role reversal, and and we just we just immediately said we must do something together. And they'd been asked to do a Gaze the Word benefit uh, bookshop benefit across the road in the um, oh gosh, Brainwork. Uh, it's in Brixton, the wonderful big venue it will come back to me no not the academy let's uh back up into town um oh gosh anyway it was across the road from where i lived and and that's so terrible that i can't think of its name at the moment that's uh that says that's my age being given away (laughs) but anyway anyway it was across the road so it was easy for me but because it was it was way before mobile phones and and they were both busy. Um, they were both busy promoting "You're My World," their first single. So I think I eventually managed to get hold of Jimmy. On they were living together at this point with their manager up in West Hampstead, and I got through to them on the phone, saying, "Um, you know, we were going to do a duet. Uh, it's kind of tomorrow. And any idea what we'll do?" And of course, they hadn't had any time to think about it. And I said, "I think I've got a good idea. Uh, what about we both sing?" Billy Holiday's Lover Man. So we're both arguing over the same man. It's it's very camp, and it's and they loved the idea. So Richard tried to find the chords. I printed up the lyrics. So Jimmy and I on stage were kind of tearing them from each other. It was a, a totally gay audience. They just loved it. The record company was in the audience. Could see that this was a winning combination yeah and suddenly i'm asked to go off to america so my whole life changed at that point anyway so i'd never really earned money other than probably you know you split you split a fee between 25 musicians you're lucky if you're going away with 20 quid each you know then suddenly you're off to america to record an album i didn't even know that the record company would buy my ticket i was busy saving up trying to find my save up for my flight that's how out of touch i was with that other world okay then you come back. Then we did the Red Wedge tour. We tried it all out, just the three of us. Um, that was a fantastic experience. Then it come, the album comes out. You're suddenly earning money on a weekly basis doing touring. You know, it's like, oh, my gosh, I can pay my rent. I can, you know, all of that stuff. But suddenly being on top of the pops and being in everyone's front room, I thought I would love it. I thought, yeah, this is, I, I want to be famous. But. 
people start following you home on the tube. They imagine you've got money or somebody worth mugging or you, you don't know if that person that's sitting opposite you on the train that started talking to you knows you. Do you actually know them? Or, you know, you lose track. You yeah. start to lose track of who you know and who you don't. And, and it was an odd thing. And then suddenly, you know, we were away for a year touring. I really missed home. And, and I watched how Jimmy had to... He had to constantly disguise himself when we were going out so he could have any kind of private life, you know, because um, he was so recognisable. Of course. And I remember thinking, I don't know that I want that for myself. Um, I did go after that and sign a major deal with Jive, uh, but I didn't sit comfortably with it. I supported Simply Red around Europe, you know, so I was playing to huge audiences. I was having hits in Europe with, with songs that were being banned in England. I did, you know, my first single, because I wasn't a writer at this point. My first single was a cover of Me and Mrs. Jones, the Billy Paul song. I didn't change it to Me and Miss, Mr. Jones, because I didn't do that, and I'd had a number one hit with a gay band. Suddenly, Radio 1 has a problem. Maybe I'm a lesbian coming out of the closet. Four years before Katie Lang gloriously comes out, nobody, they're terrified of this. You know, the fact that I'm I'm wearing Victorian underwear and a beauty spot and I might be a lesbian. Oh, my God. You know, so e end of my career in England. You know, it was like suddenly I didn't exist. I'd been the darling of the left wing press and the darling of the gay press. And suddenly I'm on my own and it looks like it's all over. Wow. And, and luckily, Simply Red asked me to support them at that point. So I go off. A lot of people think I'm his kid sister, the red hair. My music's jazzy soul. He was going through that period of being slightly jazzy too. They did that cover of If You Don't Know Me By Now. Um, and in Italy, the press treated me like a double bill, not as a, a support act. And me and Mrs. Jones went to number one. And that started my European career, where it stopped in England. It started elsewhere. Which is why Brexit for me has is has just been not just devastating because of everything that it means, but it, it it's meant that I have a third of the work that I had, uh, and uh, Europe's been so good to me. Well, hopefully, I did hear some rumblings that there's got to be changes made uh, on the radio yesterday. Funnily enough, uh, regarding touring artists uh, in in Europe, because I think. Any, any artists certainly like you know. I think they were sort of referencing like you know, new bands that haven't got that are not privileged that are working yeah. class bands. How, how are they going to work that through? It's impossible. Unless they're given the chance. It's impossible. And yeah. um, yeah. well, look, we're talking about Europe, and and and, and let's not open the the Brexit can of worms because I'll just be ranting forever about that. Um, let's um let's let's take you home. And uh, and for track six, I'm going to ask you for a favourite song from an artist from your home county, please, Sarah. Okay, so at the moment, as you know, I've travelled all over the place, but at the moment, my home county is East Sussex, and there is a glorious singer-songwriter that lives in my community that I've known for years and years and years because we've we're often been playing the same place. But there are there are a few singers that I. I listen to, particularly in a live performance, that moved me to tears every single time. Um, but this this woman is extraordinary in our community because she actually she she was born in Hastings, 
um, she is so loved there and so revered and she is so genuine. And her version of this song, which she didn't write, but it's on an album of hers. It was written by a friend of hers. And this song moves me to tears. And I just think it's, A, it's it's about... You know, it's it's about Hastings and and it's and 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 the, and the fact that I'm living at the seaside, but but her voice and her interpretation of anything, I don't think I think like Stevie Wonder, I don't think she has ever sung a bum note in her life or an insincere note in her life. This is this is Leanne Carroll singing Seaside. Beautiful, beautiful. Okay, well look, I'm going to get on to uh, the, your final track. And uh, and again, um, as you've just introduced us to a, 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 a fantastic artist, there, this is your chance to to uh, to, to to be a, a, an influencer as well, and uh, and a tastemaker. And so, for track seven, Sarah, can you tell me a song that you think many of uh, my listeners uh, may not know that you would like them to go and hear, please? Absolutely. So, this is a song by you know one of our greatest singer songwriters still living. Um, you know, some people love the whole package. Other people just love the songs that he's written rather than his voice. I've heard all sorts of different takes on this. My husband, Mark, is one of his biggest fans. And my husband was uh, saw him at the, the De Montfort when he went from acoustic to electric. And he was quite young. And he and his, his friend, school friend, they were quite far back. Um, and, you know, as part of the revolt of the folky followers of the acoustic who all had obviously planned to leave at this point to, to make a point. And it meant that Mark and his friend got front seats suddenly, oh, you know, they were moved down. <laughs> so this is, this was, this is brilliant. But, but, you know, Bob Dylan is a phenomenal songwriter. Uh, I've covered a couple of his songs along the way. Uh, one on my Bloody Rain album, where I did a duet with a fantastic Nigerian singer-songwriter, Keziah Jones, of I Shall Be Released. And and it always spoke to me because of, of the lyrics of the song. It's about being released from prison. And I always thought of my dad, yeah. you know, being locked away. But then when, when I did an album with the fantastic Italian uh, guitarist and composer, um, Antonio Forcioni, and we did a cover of Blowing in the Wind, and a very broken down uh, acoustic version of it but this particular song i you know it's it's not one of his most famous uh, and in some ways it went under the radar but you know i was i was thinking about dignity and respect they 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 they're both they they're, they're parts of the same thing respect we we hear aretha singing r e s p e c t you know uh, i demand your respect dignity is it's the same you know treat me with respect treat me with dignity and and in this song Dil- dylan reveals the difference you know we demand respect but do we have dignity what is dignity it's elusive it's imagined it's it's hard to define and somebody said that the dignity was the first to leave. And they showed me a picture and I just laughed. Those, those, those are lyrics in his song. Dignity never been photographed. You've got criminals, you've got vagabonds, you've got princes, you've got arsonists, all of these players in a piece where dignity is the concept which evades capture. It's like the will of the wisp. Very important song, Dignity, by Bob Dylan. Perfect. 
Well, Sarah, make it easy for people to go and uh, check that if they haven't already, because we put together a little Spotify playlist for company the podcast with um, all of the songs that we've we've, we've spoken about today. And um, 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 let's stop talking about uh, other artists' music and let's talk about what's going to be happening uh, in the coming months. Uh, and uh, okay, for, for me. you, what's happening? So I was telling you about this sisterhood project that I wrote during COVID and I co-wrote it with my husband and Tony Remy. Um, I spent the last year and a half crowdfunding it and it started off being written in my new home and I ran out of money along the way from all the different crowdfunding uh, that I was doing and so it ended up by being finally mixed in our front room too you know putting putting mattresses along the wall so that the the, the next door neighbors were protected and um, it's been the most fantastic uh, project I've ever been part of um, we have had so much um, so much love and support from from everyone and because it came from a good place because it, it's about you know it's, it's about the passing of the torch from one gener generation to another. We all know about the men. They're in the history books. Women rarely are. And, uh, you know, and, and, and even though my choice of 10 aren't everybody's choice, they are so important to me and, and, and to each other. You know, so one of the things that I discovered, you know, picture this. Bessie Smith, a black lesbian in the 20s. That in itself is like quite mind-blowing. She became, she put the blues on the map. She was the biggest selling recording artist and she was selling to the black market, to the black community. That's where the money com came from that put Columbia Records on the map. Columbia Records would not exist without Bessie Smith. And Bessie Smith, she was, she was literally... Um, busking on the street corner age nine, both of her parents dead, to feed her brothers and sisters. She joined Ma Rainey's traveling circus in the vaudeville. She learned her craft from Ma Rainey and Pa Rainey, but she became bigger than them. She, be but she, because it was segregation, no matter how big she was, she still couldn't eat in a restaurant. She still couldn't stay in a hotel. So her way around that was to buy a Pullman train. So she traveled around America with her whole entourage on that train, but the Ku Klux Klan were shooting at that train as it passed by. That was the, her backdrop, you know. Came the Depression, this artist that had literally put blues on the map. Music changed. She made the way for, for, for Billie Holiday, for Lady Day. She passed the torch to her. But uh, she died a pauper. Bessie Smith. She had to totally reinvent herself. She had to start driving to her concerts in her car with her musicians. She, a, a biscuit lorry drove into her car. It severed her arm. Uh, uh, she married a guy who became her manager. He took all the money. She was in an unmarked grave. 33 years later, her cleaner, who had been a young girl at the time, heard that Janis Joplin had been talking about her biggest inspiration, uh, Bessie Smith. So she went to Janis Joplin or contacted Janis Joplin and said that, that she knew where Bessie was, was laid, but there was no stone. 
Janis Joplin sent a cheque to pay for that gravestone. Janis Joplin died that year. They're all linked. Of course. They're all somehow linked. And so I'm, what I'm doing here is I'm, uh, I see, I'm one year younger than, than Kate Bush. And I'm seeing Kate as passing the torch to me and I'm passing the torch on. That's what this project's about. It's big. There's a radio series I've written. I see it as a documentary because I've documented every part of this through my brother. We even, we set up a GoFundMe um, where people would pre-order the CD and that gave us enough money to go to South Africa where we would record the Soweto Gospel Gospel Choir on the song because we'd written a big part in Koza for Miriam McCaber huge part of my history too because Miriam McCaber I in the mid 80s I joined Artists Against Apartheid Jerry Dammers and Dali Tambo set this up I knew Jerry because he was very involved with The Happy End and of course I knew him because of the specials but he became a friend and um, I, I, I with, a, with a megaphone and the happy end, we were outside South Africa House most Fridays or Saturdays singing Sikulele Africa. I, uh, I got pretty involved with at this period of time. I was also through um, a, a wonderful South African pianist called uh, Mervyn Africa, who had played with Hugh Masekela and with Miriam. He was living in Brixton near me. We started to write together. He convinced me to become a safe house for black South African musicians that were arriving here that had nowhere to be through through uh, in exile. So he he was another link. I became very much part of the African music scene at the Hundred Club with Julian Bahula. I ended up with a Ghanaian band that I was in. That Eddie Reader was the other singer, by the way. Um, we were called Fufu and Light Soup. We supported you, Masakela. The guy that got me out of acting and into singing is a guy called John Machikisa. He was a black South African actor. He was with the Royal Shakespeare Theatre, and that's how I knew him, because he was at Stratford when I was studying. He said he'd been asked with the Republic to write their lyrics, and he was a, he was a journalist as well as being an actor. And he said, look, can you come and be the singer? Uh, because I know you can sing. And he said, I've got to go back and do another season with the RSC. So that got me involved. But his dad wrote King Kong, the musical, which is what brought Hugh Masekela and Miriam McCabe to London, first of all. Okay. So do you see all these links? Of course. Dali yeah. Tambo, who set up, who became a boyfriend of mine uh, during this period, his dad was the head of the ANC the whole time that Nelson Mandela was in prison. Wow. So when I raised the money and thought, do you know what? I'm not going to send the files to the Soweto Gospel Choir like I had on my last album. I want to go and I want to go and be there. I've never been to South Africa. I might never go. So my brother Rod, who was coming to film, and Tony and I went to South Africa. By the time the GoFundMe money came into my account, the flights had doubled. I didn't know how I was going to accommodate us. I tracked down Dali Tambo, having not seen him since 1987. And I had a conversation with him and his wife, and they got four kids. They lived in Johannesburg. And he said, you are my guests. So we flew to Tambo Airport, named after his dad, and we stayed with the Tambos. And he 
uh, gave us his driver to take us to Soweto, where we, we recorded with the Soweto Gospel Choir on the day Miriam would have turned 90 years old had she lived. That's remarkable. We then did pop-up concert in Cape Town and I thought well I've never been nobody's going to come but an Italian fan of mine who lived had lived in Cape Town who I've, I've now since become great friends with she's no longer the fan she's the friend but she had tried to book me to go to South Africa years before and nothing came of it and I didn't know what that was about so I contacted her and I said what was your connection with Cape Town and she said um, oh, my husband and I have a hotel here, but we've just sold it. And we're on a safari. Why? And I said, well, I really want to go to Cape Town to film Mervyn Africa. Uh, and uh, But I, I don't have the money to pay for our accommodation and uh, and change the flights. And she said, leave it with me. And she got back to me the next day and she said, the people we've sold um, the hotel to, they're also Italian. They're big fans of yours. They're going to give do you this really good deal. Um and uh, so it was a good deal. And I said, that's great, but I don't even have that money. Do you think we could do a pop-up concert? And she said, right, tell me what it is that you need. And I told her what we needed and that we'd have to hire a guitar for Tony and uh, a PA and a place where we could sell tickets and what we do. And the next day she got back. And this is somebody who has nothing to do with the music industry. She got back to me the next day and she said, right, I found a venue. They don't normally charge on the door, but they're going to let me sell tickets um, and she got me onto Cape Town Radio. She got me onto Cape Town TV. She sold out that concert to the Italian community in Cape Town. Who knew there was an Italian community in Love Cape Town? This. I've had so many hits in Italy. That that's that's what it's like. It, it, it was. It's all this great karma around this project. Oh, what a wonderful, wonderful story! So... And so we. We're launching. We're 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 actually not going to launch the album now for a while, but we are doing a world premiere of this project with an amazing lineup of musicians and an amazing lineup of actresses and singers. Uh, and it's at the Cadogan Hall, which is just near Sloane Square. It's a fantastic 950-seater venue. It's a multimedia project, so I've got film, and I've got you. You would even if you didn't know any if you even if you know about some of these artists you will go away knowing so much more about their journeys and how important they are in our history it's on the 6th of october at the cadogan hall and we need to sell it out to to be able to pay all of these people who have been part of it um it's the very beginning this is like the first time we will ever perform this. And who knows where it will go from there. I'm hoping this has got many legs and it will fly. But even if it only happens at the Cadogan Hall on the 6th of October, it's going to be something that, 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 that men and women are going to want to be part of. It's a very, very empowering project. Sarah, the listeners to this podcast are all very passionate music fans and, and I'm sure hearing your story today and hearing your enthusiasm and love for what you've you know what, what you've put together I guarantee you're going to be getting a lot of ticket sales off the back of this episode and well that would be wonderful if, if I know money's really tight so you it's not something you take for granted anymore that someone will buy the CD or some can afford to come to a concert but if people can I promise you such an uplifting evening wonderful Sarah, it's been such a pleasure chatting to you today. Thank you so much for taking the time out to come on here. 
thank you for asking me on and for asking me all of those questions and wanting to know. Absolutely. It's a, it's, it's a circle, isn't it? Absolutely. It's been an absolute yeah. pleasure. I'm going to press stop. Don't go anywhere. Okay. Oh, mate, I love Sarah. How much fun was that? Uh, honestly, I just think that was like the, just a tiny little bit of a story. I think there's, I mean, the project sounds absolutely incredible. Um, you know that she's got stories for days. Uh, I, I need to get Sarah back on. I think once that the gig's out of the way and the record's out, uh, we'll get her back on and uh, and we'll, we'll pick her brains even more because uh, what a fantastic journey. Um yeah, I hope you, you, you thoroughly enjoyed that episode. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning, why not, um, if you want to go and watch it, um, head over to Patreon where you can watch that and all the other episodes uh, and get access to uh, hundreds of radio shows and um, unreleased episodes, playlists, mixtapes, and uh, and then swing by for a live show on Zoom. They're great fun. Um I guess that's uh, that's all she wrote today. Um, thanks ever so much for listening. Um, I'm Beck. I'm Beck. I'm not Beck. I wish I was Beck. I wish I had Beck's money. Um, that said, he is uh, he's one of them, and he he's one of them. Uh, what do they call it? Um, yeah, he's up there with. Um, he's a Scientologist, isn't he? No, I'm not Beck. I'm not Beck. I'm still Stu. I'm still Stu from off the beaten track. Um, I'm back next time. I'm not Beck next time. Have a lovely week. See you soon. Bye-bye.